0: Hello, dear listeners.
1: Welcome to the first episode.
0: And possibly the last, if I fail to overcome my hatred of my own recorded voice.
1: Of Cork Out History.
0: Where we drink Portuguese wine.
1: And we talk about Portuguese history.
0: Uh, mostly the wine.
1: My name is André.
0: And I'm Inish.
1: And yeah, uh, welcome to Cork Out History.
0: This is the first podcast for either of us.
1: Yeah, so uh, excuses for any uh, problems we might have on this first one.
0: There are some podcasts about... Portuguese history, but we feel like there's there's still space for us to make our take on it. And especially in English, there's not there's definitely not much available about our country, is there?
1: Yeah, I think we forgot to mention, but we're both from Portugal.
0: And because it's lockdown, even though we both live in London, we're still
1: seeing each other through a screen. And what are we drinking tonight, Inês?
0: We're drinking the easiest one for us to find, apparently, which is called Porta which means door number six
1: so this is a wine from uh lisbon and yeah it's one we've tried before i think it's you who told me about it actually
0: yeah i i I remember i mentioned it because i remember thinking that the the label was actually pretty cute the label and the cork because like any proper portuguese wine this wine doesn't have the um, the screw on uh, tops but a cork like it should (laughs) If, any, if anyone from Portugal is hearing us at the moment, uh, they will realize that they are not familiar with the wine. That's because this wine is only for exporting, so it's not available in Portugal. I had never seen it, so I, I can only find it here. If that's a good thing or not, I have no idea, but I was quite pleased last time I tried it.
1: Yeah, this one I've tried it. It's not my favorite, I must say, but let's just say I'm a bit uh, picky. Uh, and You are a bit picky. You are very, very picky. <laughs> so yeah, but it, it's a good one and I think we should start with this one. Especially because, yeah, this is being recorded during lockdown. So the options are indeed limited at the moment. So Very limited.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So basically we are another one of those people who during lockdown started making podcasts. Yes!
1: <laughs> Did you hear I ho- that? I heard that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cheers. Cheers. Chin ching.
0: Chin ching. Chin. And may the first episode of Cork Out History begin. Let's get started. Where is Portugal? What is Portugal? People who've never heard anything about Portugal, they might have heard about Cristiano Ronaldo. What else would you guess people have heard about?
1: Maybe Madeira wine or Uh, port? Yes,
0: I think, I believe they would call it Madeira, Madeira wine and Madeira cake. Yeah, and uh, port wine, yeah, definitely. And Algarve, probably, if you're in Britain, uh, it's quite it's quite famous here. Yeah. So, Andre, what is our first episode about?
1: When you first invited me, because yes, Inez was the one to, that invited me to start this podcast, it was really tough to, to decide on where we uh, would start, because where's the beginning? Uh, that was the first question. How we're going to do this... Um so we decided that the best place to start would probably be the beginning <laughs> 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 which beginning now 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 uh follow Inês. tell me tell me guide me through it how did we get to this beginning
0: eventually we decided that if this was to be about portuguese history we might as well begin with the foundation of Portugal it's not obviously there are things before that obviously there are loads of things after that but you know yeah okay fine let's start with the foundation of the country if not the territory because obviously the place was there before so that might sound like now we know where we starting but That's not true at all. When we tried to start talking about the foundation of Portugal, we realized by the time I caught myself, I was around, what, 700 years before the actual treaty and everything got approved. So I feel like seven centuries before is a little bit of a stretch to go. So we've cut it a little bit at the start. But I believe we've tackled just enough for this to make as much sense as possible and has much sense as uh, we can both make of it.
1: One thing that is important to mention straight away is that neither me nor Ines are um, uh, historians. I did study history in university, but I think we'll try to be critical of our sources and of uh, where we get the information. But this is, of course, a personal uh, view on things
0: it's our personal take on things kinda so basically we're doing this for fun andre did a bachelor and master's in history i did nothing of the sort i studied fashion actually so that's quite that's quite a bit of a of a stretch there i guess i really dig history though and i listen to a lot of podcasts and then here we are trying to do our own portuguese history podcast and this has all to be taken with a grain of salt. One thing that I think we are both interested in is to...
1: Rethink a few things that we've been told or, or, or question a bit further into...
0: Or take a second look at some of the things that we were taught in school and how we were presented with history, which can always be revisited and it depends obviously a lot on who's studying it.
1: Right, so... Uh we were saying before, Ines, you were saying actually that uh, when trying to get to the beginning, you went a bit further back uh, and you crossed paths with things like the Visigoth occupation of the peninsula and then the Moorish occupation, right?
0: Yeah, so basically when I caught myself, I was uh, I was starting with the end of the Roman Empire. Oh, not the end, well, when the, the Roman Empire lost its... Um, hold in in the iberian peninsula which obviously
1: and when was that
0: around the fifth century don't get me started don't get me to go all that back all that far back but anyway
1: no no i don't i don't want you to i don't want you to i just want to give some some dates to so that people have an idea of where we are in terms of time
0: I think the Roman Empire is a good reference point To ensure we all know where in time we stand It was such a crucial, colossal period in Western history Which changed the world forevermore That I think it will probably ring some bells On anyone listening to this podcast Regardless where you come from Do you reckon this is a Western bias?
1: It might be I'm not sure, that's that's a good question But I I, I don't know I I don't know.
0: I I feel like I could read a whole list of synonyms of the word important and still not overstate how significant and far-reaching in its influence the Roman Empire was. Which is exactly why we will talk about it in another season and dedicate a bunch of episodes to it at some point. Let us just say that Portugal, or to be more accurate, the territory which would become Portugal, was part of the Roman Empire until the 5th century time when the Roman Empire of the West is integrated. And I say of the West because during the 14th century uh, AD the Roman Empire was struggling to maintain such a vast empire that they decided to split it in half. So basically that was the Roman Empire of the West and the East. Now, in the 5th century, the Roman Empire of the West, with, with its capital in Rome, would be overtaken by Germanic tribes led by Alaricus, king of the Visigoths. In the East, the Roman Empire would carry on for another 9 or 10 centuries with the capital in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, and would then be most commonly known as the Byzantine Empire. There were many things leading to this collapse of the Roman Empire of the West, but the Germanic invasions were the straw that broke the camel's back. These Germanic tribes, and what we usually call the barbaric tribes, Uh, barbarian, like... The term itself was coming from, like, for the Romans and for the Greeks was just, like, anyone not being themselves. So basically, I think it starts with the Greeks, and it's just, like, people, everyone who wasn't Greek, they called a barbarian. Uh, Barbarian, the word, it literally came from, like, bar-bar, which was, like, their word for gibberish. Like, uh, they told Uh, gibberish, uh, uh, we don't know what the hell they're saying. (laughs) <laughs> and they don't talk like us. Right. yeah like barbar, bar, like blah 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 i have right. no idea Great what these guys start
1: a conversation it's isn't probably
0: it? bullshit anyway uh, let's, let's kill, kill them, them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so i had decided not to go back like uh, when we started before before starting the podcast we we were actually discussing like how far to go and not to go and we decided, okay, let's not let's not talk about the barbarians at all. And now here we are talking about the Romans. The freaking Romans are not even in the script, okay?
1: I know, I know, I know. But okay, let's carry on. Let's not get ourselves lost in there. Um, so from the Romans, we moved on to the
0: yeah. So then there's the what we usually call the uh, barbarian invasions with the Germanic tribes, which come from from outside the peninsula so from the north and they they for a long while they take a hold on of um of the peninsula peninsula is like uh during this time we're going to be referring a lot to the to the peninsula as in the whole territory there obviously today the peninsula is divided between portugal and spain if you don't know that, please do take a look at the map. Now we're gonna be extremely offended if you just refer to it as Spain or something like that. So the peninsula today it's divided between two countries. It's
1: check your maps. Go down. It's south. It's west of Europe, uh, and we're there. We are. So there. That's where we, we are the, there. The, you should the come charity. over. We have like yeah. terrific
0: country, very cheap, <laughs> lovely beaches. <laughs> anyway. Oh God. <laughs> Good food, um, excellent wine. Converted into a <laughs>
1: touristic. Yeah, okay, okay. We're already selling the country and we're not even 20 minutes into the podcast. Touristic drums. drums. Right, so you were saying that, yeah, that's the territory we we're talking about and that the Barraic tribes came in.
0: Indeed. Uh, how we... Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. I was explaining why we. I keep talking, I keep mentioning the peninsula. At this time, there's still no countries there. So there's still... And for a long time until... Well, until much later, actually, when it's going to be... These terms is Portugal and Spain. After the Visigoths take Rome, there's a shit ton of tribes moving all over Europe and taking over Roman provinces. There are four Germanic tribes which wreak a in the peninsula. The first three to come are the Vandals, the Alamans and the Suevi. Out of these, the first two moved fairly quickly, only the Suevi lasted longer and settled more significantly into something like a structured society, the Kingdom of the Suevi with the capital in Braga which had been a large Roman city and which is to this day one of the most significant cities in the north.
1: Here we are in our little uh, touristy break. Another shout out to Braga then. (laughs) Here we go. Now Now. cue the touristy trucks. Let's carry on. (laughs) It's a lovely city.
0: (laughs) Beautiful. These were very turbulent times and the land was rift with Quarreling tribes and unrest. However, one thing was truly vital in seeing this absolute shit show through the church. The church, the religious power, was the one structure to withstand the absolute shitstorm. Not only to withstand it, but to become absolutely critical, instrumental in structuring the future to this day. The Catholic Church had been deeply ingrained in the peninsular Roman culture structuring the society and land around it. It was able to take the Suevi in its stride and absorb them, so to speak, and this pagan tribe converted to Christianism. This was really only the beginning of the insane amount of power and importance that the church would hold in the future.
1: So Rome had a complicated relationship with the Visigoths as they turned from enemies raiding Rome to allies of some sort But in 1416, the emperor sent these allies to reconquer the peninsula and rule it in alliance to Rome. Now, the Visigoths then take over the peninsula, kicking off the Vandals and Almonds, which was pretty straightforward, but they struggled a bit more to get rid of the Suevi. Although, in the end, this too would come to pass, and once again religion would play a crucial role because, you see, the Visigoths, when they come to the peninsula, they were Christian, but they were Aryan Christians. Now, at this time, the peninsula was Catholic through and through. The turning point for this territory was when the Visigoths converted to Catholicism, and then the resistance the church had represented turned to support and the invaders were accepted. This would of course take its time and it would contribute to later creating what we call the Visigothic Empire, which lasted for around 200 years. So this also highlights how it wasn't only the Romans who were crucial to the formation of the Western civilization and especially of the people that lived in that territory there, but the Visigoths too. And once again, this subject is so broad that we will definitely, hopefully, visit once again in another season later on. For now, let's just mention that during their time in power and there, a a lot of the medieval social structure which would then last centuries was implemented and solidified. For instance, having a society that's divided into nobility, church and pleb, pleb... pleb... pleb? This society was extremely stratified with the Visigoths being a warrior elite which ruled over the local population only Visigoths could be nobles and only nobles could carry weapons, for instance, and that tends to set things pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, tends to be that way.
1: (laughs) These warrior elites didn't care that much for intellectual or cultural affairs, and those were left in the hands of the church, which then had a huge impact on the life and society and in everything that had to do with administration of um, the land for instance the division of the own land and even the organization into the days of the week that we still use today
0: and so now we are at a point um that we had decided to start our episode
1: kind of right i don't think we are right right there but um but i guess <laughs>
0: Well, we did say that we were going to start with the Moorish occupation, so...
1: Yeah, so we haven't mentioned the Moors yet, so yeah. Right, as Inez was was saying, the, the Visigoths were there for quite some time in that land. Um oh, 200 the years? Far, the far west of, what is now Europe? No, of Europe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was Europe then as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, shut up. Don't include this, <laughs> cut this shit up. <laughs> Right. (laughs) I was thinking European (laughs) Union and you know it.
0: We're out. Okay, so uh, the Visigoths had ruled the peninsula for uh, about 200 years, like we've mentioned. Now, the people that come next, they will stay uh, for a while longer.
1: And who are they, Ines?
0: Okay, so they are... What usually we were told like and how we learned it's like they were the Moors that's the way that we kept referring to them uh, growing up and in, in school
1: and that's basically the way that it's basically the way that all European Christians refer to them yeah at the time exactly as well, they were right? the
0: other they were coming from the north of Africa they were um, th- the main difference being that they were Muslim and obviously they were um other people to the people being there at the time. Let's go back to the Visigoths for a second. Their reign was far from a peaceful and steady kingdom. There was actually a lot of infighting amongst nobility. Because you see, the Visigoths traditionally elected their kings, which might sound rather modern to our sensibilities. You know, choosing who will rule according to their capabilities and all that. Sounds great. But like everything, it is a double-edged sword. It opens the way for a lot of instability as well strife, political games, civil war. I mean, these things take place even when you know who the next king in power is going to be. Think back to a few centuries later, medieval Europe, all those kings and queens were freaking out at not having an heir and a spare all the time. It just invites uncertainty and instability, and societies and empires do not do well with any of these things. Now, one of their kings had attempted to change the law, to turn their ruling powers to be inherited, passed from father to son, keep it in a family, keep it nice and steady, with his family in power, of course. Of course. Now, also this failed, divided Visigoths into two factions and a civil war ensued. Now, here are these two sides at war, scraping for every advantage that they can get, anything that can give them the edge and tip over this war. And then, right there, across this short stretch of sea, in the coast of Africa are the moors a whole army of moors which would most definitely easily overthrow that balance now it's really not that surprising that one of the factions realized this and looked for an ally in the moors right across the strait in the north of Africa and been like hey how about you give us a hand here and the moors were like Sure, we'll come over, no
1: problem. (laughs) Right, right.
0: When the battle took place, the Visigoths turned on each other, and the Moorish victory was so overwhelming that it became obvious just how ridiculously unprepared the Visigoths were. No resistance whatsoever. And how easy it would be for the Moors to just keep going. And so they did. (laughs) And in the next five years, they had taken over the whole peninsula, except for the Asturias which is a small extremely steep and mountainous region on the very north of the peninsula which resisted invaders and never fell under Moorish rule but I mean other than this thin strip of land in the north the rest of the peninsula was all under Moorish rule at some point with the Moorish occupation lasting as long as 800 years in the south of present-day Spain. One thing that I never realized was was that the Moorish invasion made it past the Pyrenees and into France, going as far as Poitiers, south of Paris, before being brought to a halt in the battle of Tours against Charles Martel in 732. And I had no idea! Now, I went all out on this limb here to make clear how fluid things were between the two sides from the very start the narrative is far from being that black and white clean cut neat narrative we so often tend to go for yeah j- just just a, a curiosity the point where the, the moors uh, landed in the peninsula it's it's it was in gibraltar so i believe it is a british territory from what i understand and has weird tax laws and uh, all that kind of stuff going on there uh, but anyway it's just a, a straight and it's um you know between between the north of africa and the south of spain it's the shortest distance and it's called gibraltar today like the name that we still use because that's um it was named something like gibel tariq tariq was the name of the um, of the chief of the first army that crossed the strait so the, the first chief of the um, Moors which came and conquered uh the peninsula was called Tarik. And Gibel Tarik meant Tariq's Rock or Tariq's mountain, uh where he landed. Mm-hmm. Before that, during the the classical period, th- that the strait was actually called the Pillars of Hercules. Of so course. basically it was like yeah, yeah. So um it was yeah, I just it's a fun curiosity. So Gibraltar, the way we call it today, comes from Gibraltaric. The Moor occupation of the peninsula lasted a lot longer in some areas than in others. In Portugal, the north would be occupied for around 150 years, whereas the Algarve would be occupied for 600 years. And in Spain, some areas were occupied for another 200 years after that. So Portugal, or what would become Portugal, was fully conquered by the, by the Christians. 200 years before, before Spain so yeah so obviously in the Algarve and in the south the, um, the heritage and the Arabic influences are a lot more are a lot stronger and they lasted uh, and we can see a lot more of it still today I will just mention that the Muslim occupation was an absolute gem of a period and I can't wait to revisit this in a later season for the most part the um, Moor occupation was peaceful and managed through diplomacy and treaties, with them being seen almost more as freeing invaders than oppressive ones, considering that the Visigoth rule had actually been rather dictatorial and shitty, to be fair. (laughs) It was a period of surprising religious freedom and outstanding scientific and cultural achievements. Can't bloody wait to talk about it at some point...
1: But
0: for now, let's zoom in.
1: Okay, so now that we know that our start will be at the beginning of the 8th century, let's just give like a quick chronological wrap-up of what we've been looking at. So, after Viriato, which is someone that we're not going to go into right now, he's a mythical figure of the 2nd century that we will eventually talk about up to the 5th century, We are talking about a land that's occupied by the Roman Empire. In 409, we have the entrance of the barbarian tribes that we've talked before, so the Sueves, the Vandals and the Alans, and the subsequent fall of the Roman Empire. A hundred years later, we then see the first unification of this whole territory under Leovigildo, a Visigoth king. And his successor is the one that converts to Catholicism in 589, uh, five, five uh and five eighty nine. And later on in seven eleven we witnessed the first Muslim invasion of the peninsula. It's in the years and centuries that followed that and the resistance of the Catholic kingdoms up north and in this whole process that takes place and that ultimately leads to the foundation of a separate Portuguese kingdom that we're going to focus now. And we will watch rebels, political reconfigurations and movements that will shape this piece of land.
0: Uh, in 722, the Christians' resistance wins the Battle of Covadonga. It, this was led by a, a, a leader called Plagio. Now we're not sure who Pelagio was. Some of the sources uh, mention him as um, as a Visigoth nobleman, although like some others refer to him as um, as a local rebel. So we uh, clearly we're not we're not entirely sure who he was, but everyone agrees that Plagio. Uh, was the was the leader, and that they won the Battle of Covadonga.
1: So this marks the beginning of um, of a movement that will later become known as Reconquista. Reconquista is a word that basically means to conquer again, reconquer.
0: This idea of Reconquista is is a very important. I, I, it's very defining for the early stage of stages of the peninsula. Um, The whole idea, the whole lens that would be Portugal and that would be Spain went through this and this lasted several centuries. And so it's a major part of of both countries' history. Now, obviously, yes, uh, reconquest and especially the way that we paint it or that we are thought about it in school, it is... It could be troubling in the way that we see it, but we have to understand that, um, first of all, like everything, history is always uh, seen from the point of view of the winners, And in this case, they got the land back. <laughs> they got the land back. They didn't get the land back. The land had been under Morish occupation for like 600 years so it's not like getting the land back or not, but this idea of the reconquest is uh, very close, is intertwined with, um, with the ideas, for instance, of the Crusades. Uh, later on, what?
1: Intertwined. <laughs> <laughs> intertwined. Oh god. Oh, Mate, no, I would love, I would love
0: to keep this. I'm not sure if people are gonna get it though. <laughs> um, the idea of the Reconquest is is um, intertwined with the with the idea of the Crusades, which
1: which is just starting in the, in, in that period. Actually, it's like that we have to think of it as as contemporary things that are happening simultaneously, and that Portugal and and well, yeah, not Portugal and Spain, but what will be Portugal and Spain becomes a territory of experimenting that, that, that first movement of crusading down against this enemy that's defined as the Moors in this case. So this battle, uh, Covadonga battle, was later hailed as marking the beginning of the Reconquista. And at the time, however, this was more of a defensive reaction by the people of Cantabria, the region uh, where it happened to the more incursions incursions on their lands, more so than any kind of organized offensive with the intent to reconquer any lands.
0: I think that's that's um, an important thing to keep in mind. We like to to look at it as has a, a whole story that's neatly presented, and it's not like that. Like things are messy. Things last like. Uh, Uh, hundreds of years, and obviously nothing is just as clean and neat and uh, put together like we uh, often want to believe. So it's, and that's that's going to happen a lot with our, our idea of the reconquest. And as well, like, for instance, the way that we get presented to it in school and growing up, which is like, obviously, for simplicity's sake, we say that, There were Christians and then the Moors came along and then the Christians came and they conquered the land again and boom, we have Portugal. Obviously, like we were mentioning before, it was not like this. And those are just the very, very, very broad strokes.
1: Actually, during those two first centuries of what we now look at as the reconquest... This resistance up in the north was was more often motivated by sustenance and and looting of the the Moorish lands below than any kind of religious uh, belief or any kind of crusade spirit that would later develop and play a huge role in the, the conquest further south.
0: So this Plagio, he's seen as the chief behind the beginning of the Reconquest, and uh, he's become a, a little bit almost of a mythical figure. Yeah, later kings will state that they're descendants from this guy to legitimize their power. Plagio is the origin to all the um, future dynasties in the western side of the peninsula. Now I say western. That that's basically uh, what would be Portugal and central Spain. There's another line around the county of Barcelona, which comes from France. Uh, the kingdom of Navarra and Aragón, their line descends from something in the Pyrenees. And then everything else, so what you might have heard referred to, for instance, Castilla. And the kingdom of Leon. so central Spain and uh, modern Portugal, the future dynasties all um say that they they are descendants of Pelagio has, you know, the, the one original Christian who started the reconquest as he was later has he was later painted.
1: Right. So when we're thinking about these regions up north, there's actually one that's going to play a, a more important role in this podcast, and that's the region of Portugal. And that's that's a region named a land named after Porto and Gaia. Inês, do you want to tell us a bit more about this Portugal place?
0: Yeah, so basically, um, Portugal would be the what is usually referred later on as the county of Portugal, and Portugal is a region between the, um, the Rio Minho and the Rio Douro. Uh, so the county of Portugal is where the kingdom of Portugal is going to stem from. Now interesting enough like for at least what I think is interesting which you know can be up for discussion. Uh Portucale uh, y- you can perhaps see the similarity with that name already to the, um, the um, our country's name these days which is Portugal. So it's really not that far away. Porto-Cale is the the words of Porto and cale put together. So Porto means a shipyard a port, like for boats, for ships, and Calais was the Roman name of a city that we today call Gaia. So if any of you have been to Porto, there's Porto is in the north bank of the river Douro. And on the south bank, there will be the city of Gaia. Yeah, today, Porto is the biggest city of the two. In the origin, it actually meant the port of the city Gaia. So the town developed around the port of Gaia, which was later moved from the south bank, uh, close to Gaia, to the northern bank, where today is the city of Porto. So in
1: 1868, Vimeira which is... Uh, who the fuck is Vimeira
0: Vim Peres is the man who basically conquered first conquered um the, um, the land of uh, Portucale. He conquered the um, the land in 868, if the dates are to be believed, and he was the first count of Portugal of uh, Portugal, and he founded the city of Guimarães, which which is going to be a uh, uh, important for. A very long time, and it is still very important today. If anyone is listening to us from Guimarães. lovely city, the county of Portucale would be ruled by his descendants for a long while, for many generations to come. In these in these descendants, there are a couple of interesting people. For instance, his grand 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 I'm not entirely sure how many grand granddaughter was called Mumadona Dias which is a very funky name considering for us today. But this lady was a very fierce lady. Her husband died early on, as he was the one ruling in her stead. Uh, And so she became a widow, but she kept ruling the land. She would be the one who got the Guimerenge castle uh, built, where our first king and the royal family would live, or at least... It would be one of the main royal strongholds since the monarch in portugal was always quite notorious for being nomad moving through many towns in the kingdom
1: yeah that's something that's only going to change uh, not only in portugal but like throughout europe um uh, in the passage between the medieval way of ruling and the modern way of ruling where kings tend to get more um, based in one place because bureaucracy also uh, increases tremendously so we won't see this nomad kings that we have in this period.
0: The zenith, what could be considered the zenith of the county, would have been under a descendant called Gonzalo Menendez. He seemed, uh, according to the sources, he seemed to have hold at some point the name of um, Grand Duke of Portugal in some documents. It could have been this Count Gonzalo who assassinated one of the kings called the I of the Kingdom of Leon, this murder would have occurred in quite a spectacular fashion, if you want. Now, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here, but as it turns out, this Sancho I, who was possibly assassinated by the Grand Duke, makes for quite a story. He was nicknamed the Fat, having weighted something around 240 kg. And guess what? He was arrested for it. Good old fat phobia doesn't care if you're a king. The nobles were taking the piss constantly and argued they could not be governed by someone who couldn't jump around. They went even further and questioned whether he could get frisky and whether he had consummated his marriage. And it worked. And he fucking lost his throne based on this. Then in order to get his throne back, this guy goes to the first dietitian in history. I'm probably gonna murder his name here, but it was something like Hasday Ibn Shaprut, a Jewish physician in the Caliphate of Cordoba. And may it just gets cray cray pretty quickly. This guy actually had his mouth stitched together in order to ensure he would take nothing but liquids through a straw. He was tied to a bed to ensure that he wasn't eating shit, and only freed to go on these long walks where he was pulled along in ropes by slaves. I have no idea how the fella actually survived this, but he managed to and he lost weight and he actually managed to get back to get his throne back.
1: What the hell? How, how, like, how did you learn about this? How, what, this is horrible.
0: It's just one of those rabbit holes. (laughs) And then, and then, but we don't stop here because it's like, so he goes through all of this shit, right? All that to six years later be killed by a poison apple of all things. Very Snow White style. Am I meant to think that this is not a jab at a fat person? This is up for debate though, not everyone agrees that he was our Portuguese Gonzalo. It's possible that it was some other Gonzalo um, living at the time, but uh, I like to go with this one. Let's think it was the Grand Duke of Portugal who assassinated the King of um, Leão, Snow White style.
1: Okay, so Portugal, this county, lasted until 1071 uh, when Nuno Mendes dies in the Battle of Pedroso. Who the fuck is Nuno Mendes?
0: Nuno Mendes is the last descendant of the um, Vimara Pérez and Mumadona Dias. And we are going to talk about the Battle of Pedroso in just a few minutes or longer if we get carried away.
1: So it's after this battle that there's a 23-year interregnum where the county of Portugal ceases to exist until it is then restored in 1094 when Afonso VI uh, gifts this county to Henry of Burgundy as a dowry of his daughter Teresa
0: which is going to be major to our kingdom. And so we are definitely going to focus on that in just a little bit.
1: And this is where we'll stop for now. Stick with us and join us in the next episode of Corkout History in two weeks.
0: Until then, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Corkout History Pod and on Twitter at Corkout History, where you can reach out to us, let us know your thoughts and discover more about the upcoming episodes.
1: Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to us.
0: Your comments are crucial so that more people can find us.
1: Bye! Bye.